everyone, this is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Our real science sessions focus on connecting with the researchers, educators, and industry professionals from all walks of life that make scientific discovery and innovation possible. We talk about their work, their passions, their pitfalls, why they got into science in the first place, and where the road lies ahead. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Brent Sinclair, a professor in the biology department at Western University. Brent's research largely involves insect thermal biology and has seen him freezing bugs all over the world. Brent spends quite a bit of time outside of his research and teaching responsibilities to organize career events for the graduate students in the biology department. As a graduate of this department myself, I recently spoke at one of these events, and as we were chatting, I knew that we needed to get Brent on real science to talk about why these opportunities are so important for graduate students as they get close to finishing their degrees. So here today to share about your life and also your passions in and out of the lab. I'm very pleased to welcome you, Brent. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, it's nice to be here, Sarah. Awesome. Well, I'm just going to jump right into the questions. So the first question that we have is, where did you grow up and how did your youth influence your path and passion towards science? Right. So I grew up in New Zealand, which is why I talk funny. And... Um, I didn't grow up, I, I'm first generation to go to university and that sort of thing, so I didn't grow up with a lot of opportunities to go outside. I grew up in the North Shore of Auckland, which is about as exciting as growing up in, you know, Burlington near Toronto or something, it's pretty suburban. Um, but what we did have was, at the time in New Zealand, the kind of prime time Saturday evening television was blue chip nature documentaries, most of which were actually made in New Zealand. So. Um, Strangely enough, um, the Natural History Unit in Dunedin is the second largest producer of natural history documentaries in the world after the BBC. And so there were all these great things about the biology of New Zealand and the biology of surrounding areas and things that meant that when I got to university, I could really relate to like where all these creatures were and that sort of thing. Awesome. And so you mentioned, obviously, the University of Dunedin. Um, did you study there or where did you study and how did you kind of end up in your current field? Yeah, so I started out at university with this grand plan to do a, a, a double degree in English and biology. And at the time, the way this worked was that you had to do an entire degree in biology and also an entire degree in English and almost no courses could be like cross-credited from one to another, which was going to take five years. And looking back would have been a monumentally stupid idea for me. Um, and this was at the University of Auckland and it was only when I was kind of between first and second year and I had this um, job um, banging lids on pots in a chemical factory, you know, when you buy your pool chlorine and it's in little like, like tubs, I was the guy that would weigh in the 500 grams of pool chlorine and, and hammer it on with a rubber mallet. And I was chatting to the chatting to the other guy um, that was working with me um, through respirators, of course. So it's like a lot of conversations are like this. And, <laughs> and I was talking about the difficulty of figuring out my schedule for the, the next year because all the biology courses had all these lab components. And the English department courses tend to be in the afternoons when the biology labs were, and it was really hard to get all the kind of courses in that I needed to do. And so he was a couple of years ahead of me at university and was like, well, you know, what have your grades been like in 
you know, in these different things. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I do really well in biology because it's easy and not so well in English and philosophy because they're like challenging and interesting. And he's like, well, has it occurred to you that you might be good at biology and not as good at English and philosophy? And this was a, a revelation, which probably tells you all sorts of things about my, my um, self-awareness. And so I went into sort of full-time biology. Um, at the end of that year, I managed to get myself a, a, um, a research job for about six weeks at the beginning of the summer. There were student research studentships, but I wasn't successful in getting one of those for the summer. But there was a guy that had taught a, um, a field course and I really wanted to do it. So I phoned him um, back in the days when we telephoned and I phoned him every week for the entire term until he found some money to employ me for six weeks to help out his various graduate students in the field over the, the first part of the summer. And then as uh, that wound up and I had a job um, putting sticking the barcodes onto books in the, the library. So if you've ever wondered how all those barcodes got onto all those old books, it was people like me. And um, which meant that I, 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 I finished my summer with an incredible knowledge of the Dewey Decimal System. Um, but the problem was that the department was amalgamating kind of zoology and botany and whatever other departments. And also the university was shifting from a, um, a quarter system to a semester system. And the third year courses were just kind of all like weird and screwed up. And, you know, knowing what I know about undergrads now, I was probably misreading the whole thing, but it seemed to me that, that it was just impossible to do any of the courses I wanted to do. And so I talked to um, Mick Clout, who was the guy I was working for, and he said like, well, you could think about going somewhere else. So Targa University is really good for, um, you know, for zoology right now and could be a good place to go. So um, I wrote a letter, as one did in those days, to the department chair with a photocopy of my my transcript and said, you know, would, you know, what would be my chances of doing zoology? And he wrote back and said, like, I think you'd be an excellent student here. So I packed up and moved to the other end of the country to, to do zoology. Um, where, by the way, the library used the Library of Congress system. So my, all my knowledge of the Dewey Decimal System was a complete waste of time. So I arrived and I immediately kind of wriggled my way into doing some volunteering for various graduate students and things that were doing field work. And that, as it turns out, was a theme throughout um, my studies at Otago is that the zoology department there, um, you know, Dunedin is the wildlife capital of New Zealand. You know, we would have like, like literally like, like afternoon undergraduate lab trips to see seal colonies and penguins and albatrosses. So it was just a stunning place to, to study. And it meant that there were all these opportunities with people doing field work you know, nearby. So I spent a bunch of time with um, Jenny Rock, who is now actually faculty at, at um, Otago, helping her catch lizards and measure body temperatures and things. I did some work for various people that were um, running around at night banding seabirds. So we were catching petrels and things and sticking bands on them and helping, you know, helping handle penguins and all sorts of really great things like that. Um, and so I kind of, but I, I was interested in working on insects because I thought insects were interesting, which is strange because I was a little bit scared of insects as well. Um, and when I was in third year, we had an environmental physiology class and we had a guest lecture um, by a guy called Bill Block, who is a, a um, 
researcher at the British Antarctic Survey, and he gave two guest lectures about insect cold tolerance and about the fact that there are insects that survive freezing and insects that avoid freezing and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, that is what I want to do. And so I, I, I basically like, you know, signed off on doing, you know, helping out with lizard endocrinology and went and visited the person in the lab closest to this, which conveniently had Bill visiting on sabbatical. It also had a guy called Hans Ramlov, who is a, a, a um, an insect physiologist visiting on sabbatical. And my to-be supervisor, David Wharton, who's actually a nematologist, um, but worked on environmental physiology of nematodes and kind of signed up. And, you know, and that um, winter break, I read like the entire oeuvre of insect cold tolerance literature, which was easier in 1995 than it is now. Um, And yeah, and did an honors project, finally got a summer studentship and worked on some insect physiology of insect malpighian tubules, which we're still working on in my lab, and did an honors project and which involved me running up and down in the mountains and catching cockroaches in the winter. And then I knew that I wanted to do a PhD. I knew I wanted to stay in this like, you know, university environment. And I looked around and I didn't really know about really anywhere other than Otago and Auckland universities. And I liked the lab I was in and there was an opportunity to go to Antarctica. So I was like, great, I'll stay here and do some field work in Antarctica. And that's how I ended up doing my, my um, PhD. Amazing. That's a very cool story. And so you've mentioned quite a few people um, in that path to your current field. Um, Who has influenced your career and how? Yeah, so I think that, you know, I don't have any one person or mentor or anything like that that's had a huge impact on, you know, on directional. You know, there's there's people along the way that have been enormously helpful and and supportive there's been people that haven't been supportive but have still been helpful and i think that over time you kind of adopt um um you know mentors and and peers as you go depending on the situation you're at and then that that list i think for anyone should change over time so um you know, so so I had my various supervisors and advisors um, who were formally involved, but also I often had sort of um, people that I would informally adopt. And so when I was a grad student, I worked a lot with a guy called Robert Poulain, who's a um, who's a um, Canadian parasitologist, absolute superstar. And I wasn't doing parasitology, but we spent a lot of time talking about science. And he did a lot of mentored me a, a great deal, probably more than I realized. And also Janice Lord, who is a, a um, botanist, but an alpine ecologist. And I was also fortunate that there were a couple of other people in the botany department. I spent a lot of time in the botany department because they were fun people. Um, Kath Dickinson, who really influenced my thinking, and also Sir Alan Mark, who's sort of the the godfather of New Zealand alpine ecology. So it was really important through there. And then, of course, I moved on and, and ran into various other people. So, you know, various postdoc advisors and so forth and such like. And also just kind of generic advisors that, you know, you kind of latch onto at conferences and become friends with. And now I have the the pleasure of having, you know, still having mentors of various sorts, but also having kind of a group of peers that really help me kind of situate my work and understand where we're at and we talk about, you know, what we're doing science-wise and things. So various kind of colleagues in 
broader insect physiology land that I hang out with the conferences and you know and, and during the pandemic we kind of have zoom beers with periodically and things and they've been really helpful to um, you know kind of continue that mentoring not so much as a as a, a mentor as a peer amazing yeah a little community that's great and so a few weeks ago, uh, you ran a series of career events for the grad students in the biology department at Western University. And so what is your motivation for organizing these types of events, types of events year after year? Yeah, so this started many years ago when I realized that what I would often see is people that had graduated with their PhD still kind of kicking around the department like six months later um, because they hadn't really made any plans during their, their PhD as to where they were going to go next. And the thing you have to realize is people very seldom fail a PhD because they go into the defense and they don't know what it was they did, right? People fail PhDs by not submitting them and that could take the form of a very, very long PhD, or it could take the form of just kind of, you know, disappearing out. And I think that if you start developing a plan as to what you're going to do next, then finishing the PhD stops being this like giant hurdle goal that you need to reach and becomes actually just another another kind of thing that you need to get done in order to get to where you want to be. So I started out by running workshops, helping people to figure out how to, helping PhD students to figure out how to find a postdoc and trying to kind of promote the idea that you should be looking for this, like, you know, before you've finished your PhD. If you start when you, after you've finished, then you've kind of left it a bit too late. And then over time that has kind of evolved because, um, I started to think about, well, who's doing PhDs? And a lot of the time people are doing PhDs not because they really want to be where a PhD will take them, but because they it was kind of convenient to hit snooze and stay at university instead of go out into the real world. And, you know, on the one hand, I think that's great. You can think of a PhD as being a sort of a, a national service for, you know, spending some time doing science and things. But, you know, realistically, how long do you want to be poor for? And so... I um, started kind of building a bit more of a, a non-academic kind of careers um, series, I guess. And, and this partly came about because I was sort of involved with trying to develop people's skills in that regard. So I would do things like get, uh, I'd work with the careers service and, and run workshops on, you know, resumes and turning your academic CV into something that wasn't and LinkedIn profiles and things like that. And, you know, and my, my, rationale was that you know I've, I've you know, I've had plenty of jobs outside academia when I was younger but none of them are particularly relevant to the sorts of things that people want to do with their masters or their PhD um, but you know I figured like no I, I, I don't I don't know how to do any of the things I do in my job so it doesn't really it's, you know so so adding in like advice about non-academic careers is just another thing that I have no qualifications or experience that I'm telling people about so it fits perfectly well with you know with my general expectations of the universe so then I started running situations where I'd get people in to give some talks and things. This is, you know, all pre-Zoom and things. And it was sort of expensive and complicated and it relied on people driving from wherever and being there and being in person and things. And so in some ways, the, um, the series really took off when we were 
when we entered Zoom land with the pandemic, and suddenly I could get people from you know all over the world potentially to come and talk about their experiences. So we've had, as a result, we've had a lot of people that did their masters and are now working in Toronto or Montreal or whatever, and that's been very easy to organise. We've had um, among PhD students, we've had people moving into all sorts of different kinds of positions, and often you know not in London, Ontario, and it's really kind of helped to to build that and I think so my motivation I guess is to make sure that people know what is out there because it's very easy to do what I did and just kind of keep hitting snooze because it's this cozy comfortable place in academia. Mm -hmm. Yeah definitely I mean we chatted a little bit during the event and a little bit after but I can completely agree and I know something that I mentioned during the event was that some of the best advice that I actually got during my master's was from um, someone who had done a master's in the lab that I was in. Uh, his name was Dylan Chung. And he said, don't do a PhD just because you feel like you have to. Um, you know, you can always go back and do one later. And that always resonated with me because if I hadn't found joy in working in industry and working in the field that I'm in now, um, that would have always been an option. And I feel like at first I didn't really believe that that to be true. Um, and so, yeah, I'm always thankful for Dylan. Thanks Dylan. <laughs> um, for that. And so also last time we chatted, you had mentioned that you were actually recently diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. Um, and that it explained a lot about your life and your work habits. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that and kind of how it's influenced your career path? Yeah. So this is all still brand new, you know, we're still sort of figuring out what it looks like and how how I treat it and things. But what I've realized is that a lot of the strategies that I had for, co for doing academia are actually strategies for managing ADHD as well, in that I have a legendarily complicated, you know, granular calendar of all the things I need to do. I don't have to-do lists. I actually, you know, if I'm going to do something, I put it in there. And I've, I've spent a lot of time explaining to people about how this is just a really great way to manage your life as an academic and, you know, and make sure that you get things done on time and so forth and such like. Um, and I now realize that, that to some extent I've come to that because I have some of those ADHD traits of not really doing stuff unless it's in the calendar. And so as long as I sold my soul to my calendar and did what it told me to, then I worked fine. Um, how I came to the diagnosis was that I think that a lot of the things that work well um, in person on campus were starting to break down with um, with the pandemic, you know, instead of walking around to meetings and things and kind of, you know, doing some of that physical stuff that's that's quite important for concentration and things, I was, you know, occasionally staggering a couple of meters to the bathroom. And um, so, you know, so, so various things sort of came to the, the head with that. And I think that that's been quite common during the pandemic. Um, so, yeah, and then otherwise, I think the other thing that I've really realized is that I've always been quite um, um, judgmental of people that don't manage their time, that don't come to a meeting that we'd arranged or something like that. Um, and also very kind of upset with myself if I'm not meeting, um, you know, meet, meeting a, a arriving at a meeting on time or doing things on time or meeting deadlines and things like that. And I think that, that personally that was because, you know, I've been working, I work so hard to make sure that I don't do those things that, um, that I get very upset if I fail at it. So yeah, so it's, it's an ongoing process. I'm certainly not alone. The, the, academia is a, is a 
a fairly um it's a, a place where people with ADHD can operate quite well because we have a certain amount of flexibility and, um, you know, a certain amount of, you know, and it, it definitely, um, um, academia allows my, you know, my short attention span and I've always got like far too many projects going on. And, you know, I describe myself as a farmer rather than a miner in terms of the research that I do. I don't go very deep in very much. And we, I always have like a bunch of different questions. I'm sort of dabbling in trying to go a little bit deeper into some of my research right now, but usually that is facilitated by having like really great graduate students who are interested in actually like figuring out the mechanisms, you know, cause I'm just like, oh, that was nice. Now what about that? So yeah, so it's, it's an ongoing process. And, and I think that um, one thing that is a little bit tricky is that if you is that the the standard sort of ADHD questionnaires um, don't always pick up sort of academics that have figured out a way around it because the first set of questions are all about do you find it hard to start projects or, or finish projects or get things done and things and it's like no damn it I don't this is my you know this is how I identify myself as someone that finishes these projects and things but what I haven't realized is that the second half of you know the book about managing ADHD is all about these like little strategies that you can use which you know I'd been you know developed which I'd developed independently. Yeah a self-developed uh, kind of a treatment yeah. to your situation yeah. that's awesome um and very interesting you never stop learning things about yourself especially in academia <laughs> yeah yeah it's quite it, it's quite an interesting experience but i think that um you know i've been a professor for like 16 years now and everything changes over time you know you kind of you know I'm not the same person that I was when I first got my job, you know, and one of the other things that I talk about a lot with my students, I've just finished um, teaching a graduate writing course, is also that, you know, that looking back, you know, and what I was doing is I was picking out like manuscripts and drafts that I'd written over my career. And I'm so much a better writer now than I was, you know, when I started as an assistant professor. In fact, I'm a much better writer now than I was this time last year. And it's important that we're always developing throughout these things. And academia is a good place to allow that, but I don't think that it's it's restricted to academia because there aren't very many jobs that you would sort of remain static in, especially if you've got a kind of a, a science degree and you're working in that kind of area. So I think that it's, it's nice to do that kind of continuous development. Yeah, definitely. Well, I just want to thank you again so much for your time and your insights today. It really was a pleasure to have you with us. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Real Science and that you'll tune into future episodes where scientists, just like you, answer questions about their life, their work, and share insights into what it's like to be doing real science. Don't forget to subscribe.